Greetings and welcome to Cool Radio Stories, a podcast for independent radio stations in small to medium-sized markets, presented by Cool Radio Streaming. Now here's your host, Tom Dobrez. Thank you, Mr. Announcer. I am Tom Dobrez, and our guest today has radio programming production and ownership in his blood his perspective, however, is from the mostly from the on-air side of things. He has been an owner in a few small market stations in Texas. He's also worked as a production director of one of the world's most popular radio stations, WLS in Chicago. So today we're going to sit back and listen to the cool radio story of Hal Widston. Hal, it is a pleasure to have you, and thanks so much for sharing your cool radio story with us today. Hey, Tom. Thanks very much for, uh, for having me. We're going to get to that cool radio story of yours in just a second. I want to remind our listeners first that during this production of this show, the world remains in the throes of the coronavirus COVID-19 threat. And we're going to hear Hal's thoughts on that about survival tactics for radio stations. But we're going to table that towards the end of the show. also like to inform our listener that uh, we're going to hear from attorney John Garziglia during our Ask John segment. where We'll ask John about some pressing legal matters in the radio world. And then finally, at the end of the show, we have a little digital audio magazine for you called Digging Into Digital. John Wanzuck will be giving you some perspective on combining your radio station opportunities with some digital opportunities. But first things first, it is a question I ask at the beginning of every show. Hal, what was your radio job number one? My number one radio job was in uh, Fremont, Nebraska, at a little AM, 500 watt AM, KHUB. And the very first thing uh, that I ever did on the air uh, and got paid for it was a polka show at five o'clock in the afternoon. Which is a pretty frightening thing, although I'm originally from Minnesota and there's a good deal of polka music that was played during that period, but... uh, as a kid who got into this originally to play rock and roll on the radio, it was kind of a shock. <laughs> well, I can't relate to that indeed, Hal. I personally uh, was a rock and roller at heart, and my actual first job was in farm radio, so selling farm radio. And here you were doing polka radio, <laughs> the polka top 10. You got your both feet in, I imagine. Where did that lead you to? Well, that took me uh, I was over to uh, a station that had just been purchased by a new group in Council Bluffs, Iowa. The original call letters had been KSWI, and um, that's a station that went back into the, oh, it went back into the 40s. It had been an AM, and, and actually they had one of the first FM licenses that was issued, and uh, I was recruited Uh, to go over there to do this station. Now, this is 1964, and this is kind of the dawn of of cartridge machines, as radio guys know them, and that whole business was just getting started. So we we started when I got to KRCB, which were the call letters then, down in a Quonset hut down by the Missouri River where this monster tower was. 
the AM was at 1560 on the dial, so it was diplexed on the tower, along with this huge tower. They had turned in the FM license, so we were at AM, and that was the second job. There were a lot of strange things that happened there, but eventually what happened was we moved downtown to studios, and keep in mind, this was 1964, it was actually an all-cartridge operation, music, spots, everything. Well, let me ask you in regards to what that meant, you know, for young, our younger audience, perhaps. Uh, were you physically putting these together? We, we, well, it was cartridge machines, you know. So what we were doing was we were, we were building cartridges, building Fidelipak cartridges at varying different lengths and then recording everything onto them. Uh, we had an engineer, a guy named Mitch Schulman, who uh, had decided that there was a new concept he wanted to try so instead of having a regular type control board that you would normally see at a station, what Mitch did is he took all the components out of a control board, stuck them in a rack, and then on the table or the counter where you would normally have the board, we just had switches and pots and cartridge machines sitting in front of us. So all the music was on the cart, all the spots were on cart, um, and you know when everybody else was playing 45s, we were playing tape, essentially. Well, and quite honestly, then the industry sort of evolved to being mostly carts. And now even years, decades later, even the automation systems in the mo most modern radio station and most stations I've been in most recently, all are still kind of emulating that whole cart design where even the visual representation that you see in the modern automation systems of for radio stations. It's all kind of uh, harking back to those days of carts. Yeah, I mean, old habits die hard, and, and it, uh, you know, it, it, everybody is, is kind of still called them cart numbers, uh, in some cases now cut numbers, digital systems. But, uh, yeah, there, I mean, there's still a lot of throwback thinking like that, even though we have all the, uh, you know, the pre-programming stuff with the music programs and the, the high level of digital automation that people are running today. Thanks for going down that memory lane. I did want to kind of, you know, connect the dots for particularly people that haven't been in radio that long to where the carts were a physical actual thing that were throughout the radio stations. But now the whole cart numbering system, the whole concept of having songs as uh, visually represented as a cart in the automation system, that it actually had its origins uh, deep rooted in the, in the analog world that used to be radio stations. Let's jump ahead now in your personal career, Al, if you don't mind. Uh, you found yourself at perhaps the most famous call letters on the planet, WLS in Chicago. What was that experience like? It was it was a humbling experience. Um, it it I, as a kid, I had grown up just west of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, being kind of a radio geek in my teens, I had tuned around the dial at night, like a lot of us did on AM, listening to the stations that were coming in from out of the market. Uh, we had some great stations in the market, like uh, WDGY, which was stores, and KDWB, which was uh, Coral Collier, uh, one of Chuck Bloor's stations in the market. And we also had the great WCCO, which at one point had 40 shares in the market. So there's some great radio there, but you know, you're out in your car driving around at night and you want to hear some rock and roll and you start tuning around if you're a radio geek 
and darned if you don't hear WLS in Chicago coming in almost like a local. So having listened to that, I remember the day I started at LS driving up Michigan Avenue to the studios, which were then in the Stone Container Building, and saying, you know, holy smoke, <laughs> you, you, you are going to go to work tomorrow morning for John Rook, who was obviously one of the great preeminent program directors in the business, at a station that you listened to when you were a kid in the number two market in the country. And it was a little frightening, I have to tell you honestly. Well, I think the only parallel I could find, uh, Hal, is today it's like being called up to play for the Yankees. So you're in the minor leagues, and uh, then you have to play in Yankee Stadium. Uh, the Big 89 WLS is Chicago. It's hard to understate its impact in the late 60s, early 70s uh, across the country, literally a signal that traveled to numerous, numerous markets. I remember in Florida picking it up at night and all the locals were listening at night to WLS. My, my favorite uh, WLS uh, liner is the one that Lyle Dean cut and the one we ran at night. And it goes from Chicago to the North American continent, WLS. So you literally made it to the bigs, indeed, at uh, WLS. Uh, obviously a career highlight for you. But then uh, beyond that, Hal, other career highlights, things you'd like to you know, really hang your hat on through the years? I think the first station I programmed out in Portland, Oregon, was KGW. And that would certainly be one of the favorite places I was. Uh, we got to start that uh, as a format change. Had a great signal at 620 on the dial. Uh, we were up against a very uh, established competitor, and we took them out. It, it was just a, a great experience to to have a first programming job in a situation like that with a company like uh, what was then King Broadcasting Company, which was just a, a, a terrific organization to work for, uh, that uh, if you've been in the business for a long time and you remember companies like Westinghouse and Susquehanna and other people like that, King ranked right up there with those guys. And uh, that was a great experience for me. Another one was programming in Denver at KIMN, you know, legendary set of call letters. And uh, uh, that was fun. And then buying the station here in San Antonio uh, back in the fall of 83, the FM, which was uh, then KSAQ. That was a lot of fun. Well, that's really where I'd like this conversation to go now is to explore that ownership phase. You had come from some major markets, some major broadcasting concerns. I'm sure you had soaked in a lot of uh, knowledge and information, and you find yourself with what at the time was a still considered a relatively small market in San Antonio. But you had yourself a new opportunity to uh, run a radio station, uh, be the owner. So I'm curious as to kind of what your objectives were going into that and what did you see as the opportunity and how did you begin to develop that success? Well, the, the one here in, in San Antonio, uh, the first thing we, we wanted to do was to establish a team of guys who on the air who were what I would call real people. We wanted to connect with the audience uh, I think one of radio's great strengths is, you know, if, if you talk to people about their favorite radio station that they've listened to over the years, you know, they talk about the station and they love the music, but it's the on-air people that they really love. It was the connection they had. 
like in Chicago with people like Larry Lujak and Art Roberts and Chris Eric Stevens and uh, Clark Weber. And I mean, I could go on with, you know, those guys. Uh, my first goal was to, was to get the station here staffed with a group that could really begin to relate to the city. And uh, we spent a lot of time before we actually switched the format because we were waiting for the FCC approval to take those guys around town and show them the community and get them out and so forth. The second thing was to uh, do a good job of making the station a part of the community from the standpoint of the, the cont contribution we could make uh, in various public service type of things. We wanted to be known as the station that really did care uh, about uh, San Antonio and not only talk the talk, but walk the walk. So we immediately uh, began to get involved in activities in town to, you know, to begin to do that right, right from the beginning. And of course, you want to make a profit. So you want to be successful. And, uh, you know, we, we knew we were in a, in a very competitive situation here. At the, at the time that we bought the station in San Antonio, it was like the 29th mark or 28th market, something like that. But it was the 18th most profitable. The reason for that was most of the stations here in San Antonio were owned by companies that were either headquartered here or small companies, and they'd owned them for a long time. They were very established, and they had no debt. So our first approach here was to begin to try to make reasonable predictions to the advertising community as to what kind of ratings numbers we thought we were going to have and what the game plan was to get the thing off the ground. So it appears you had a bit of a three-pronged approach as you're building the station. One was to get the best talent you could find. Second was to reach out to the community, connect to the community the best way you could, both from a sales perspective. And then third was to be realistic and honest with your advertisers, your client base of what you could and should, they could expect from you as a broadcast concern. Let's pick apart number one there, uh, the talent. You were bringing them in and then you had to make them San Antonio friendly? We, we wanted, some, some of our guys, actually most of our guys were not from here. So, and, and to a certain extent, there was some logic in that in that we, 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 you know, there, there was a lot of switching back and forth with stations that we observed from other people who'd been in the market for a while. And I'm not saying that was bad. And there were a lot of good people doing that. I didn't think as a new organization, people that nobody knew in town, that I was going to be able to attract those kind of folks. So we went outside the market to get most of our people. Well, you know, you, you need them to understand the city and the area and get them out. So we literally took bus tours <laughs> around town. Uh, we had dinners in various places. Uh, one of those was at the top of the uh, of the tower downtown, the Hemisphere Tower, which was part of the uh, World's Fair back in '68. Here, uh, it has a revolving restaurant in it. We wanted them to see what the place looked like from up above. Most of our people that we brought in, we had in town and had them in a motel uh, situation while they looked for places to live. And uh, all of our people were pretty much you know, in the market and living here for at least a month or two before we actually turned the station back on after shutting it off to kind of wash away the, the memories of the other format. It, it had been a religious station and we were going to switch it to top 40. 
and we wanted to put some space in between us and that uh, station's format. So we shut it down for a month and a half. So in order to prevent sort of listener whiplash, you took your time, you took the station off the air so that you could have a real clean, concise start to the new format. Yeah, and, and we had a lot of equipment uh, things we wanted to do with it because it, it didn't have great stuff at the time, and we, we wanted to do a really good job of that. Uh, we just needed to do a lot of cleanup and so forth. And, you know, when we, when we, we it actually closed a little sooner than it should have, um, and we really weren't ready with the whole group yet. So we needed that time to get our staff together, and uh, I was recruiting salespeople at that point, and you know, as you know, as an owner yourself, there's a lot of things you have to do to get one of these things ready to go and keeping it on the air and you know, trying to do something during that period just didn't seem like a good idea. So we pushed the off button. All right. So you've made the decision, changed the format. You've improved the station sound, I assume, with some high quality equipment. Now you got some people that you need to recruit. What's kind of your ongoing process for recruitment and hiring of good people in the radio industry? We were looking for people who were, again, what I call real people, who when you listen to these folks on the air, you, you felt like they were talking with you, not at you. Uh, they were communicating with you. Um some of the best on-air people I, I ever heard were people who made you feel like you were a part of what was going on and made you feel like they were really into what they were doing. And that's a hard thing to describe. You know it when you hear it. Listeners know it when they hear it and they're attracted to people like that. So that's initially what I was looking for. The second thing we, we were looking for is, is people who were coachable so that as we had them in, uh, we could help them and improve their talents and, uh, you know, get better at what they were doing. And we felt like we had to evolve as a part of the market. So that means from, from day one, you know, on day 100, we had to be better on day 100 than we were on day one in a variety of different ways. And so I was looking for those people. And, you know, we were looking for good guys who could work with each other and, and build a team. And, and uh, so that was the beginning. We, we had an opportunity to recruit here in a way that a lot of people don't have. We did this up at King Broadcasting, and I think it was one of the best things that we did up there because we put together really some good staffs at the King stations over time. When we found somebody that we really liked a lot, we'd spend some time on the telephone with them after we'd heard their tape and talk to them about it. Sometimes we'd ask for another tape just so that we could listen to it. I'm talking about tape. That dates me, doesn't it? So... <laughs> so we would have a long telephone conversation with these folks and, and just really talk about, you know, what they wanted to do, what their goals were, you know, what they liked about what they were doing, uh, what they didn't like about what they were doing, where they were. Just a whole discussion with them about how they saw the, the business and so forth. And then we put them on a plane and brought them out here. And we flew them in and would sit down and spend some time talking with them. We'd uh, most of the time, sometimes do it, depending on where they were, we would do it in a day, bring them in early in the morning and send them back on the latest flight we could find late in the afternoon. Sometimes it was an overnight. So we did that with everybody we recruited here. And it was certainly well worth it, I think. Um, there are people listening to this who are owners and managers who are going to say, you're crazy. 
But you know, it, it, it really worked out well, and it worked for us up at King. And uh, you know, I felt like it was something we really needed to do. So we spent the money, and we did it. Well, I agree. It does sound a little anchoristic where you could possibly be flying people into a market in these days. However, it, it has a lot of merit, though, as well, regardless of whether it's on air, town, manager, whatever, just getting that individual that you're about to make a huge investment in, in time, energy, and money for your company to at least make sure that they're comfortable in the marketplace, they're comfortable in the building with the staff that they may eventually be working with. So you're kind of preventing a much bigger, or I should I say a much more expensive mistake to just a single plane ticket. Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of times, a lot of times, you know, in radio, and I'll, I'll, I'll bet you Dean Sorensen might have said this, we're, we're quick to hire and slow to fire. And that's either, uh, you know, that strikes terror into the hearts of some people, but sometimes that's what happens, you know especially in a small market situation where you're under pressure and you don't have a lot of extra bodies sitting around to be able to do the work, you need to replace people quickly. And sometimes you say, well, you know, maybe this person will be the person who works out for you. Uh, and don't do your diligence that you really should be doing before you hire them. How about sales now? What was more or less the recruitment process there to look like and how did you find yourself succeeding uh, by finding good salespeople? Uh, I hired a sales manager who had been at KOY in Phoenix. They were going through some uh, ownership and management changes at that time. And, you know, sometimes even good people get pushed out in situations like that. And uh, I was fortunate to get Rick Joppy to come out uh, and join us. You got to remember what we're, what we're asking people to do here. First of all, we're a brand new radio company that hasn't existed before. We're in a market where no one really knows us. Uh, we're taking a station that we, that we have off the air. And we're going to put it back on the air with a format that nobody's heard. And we're asking these people to give up their lives to come out here. Well, not their lives, but to give up their current situation to come to work for us, hoping that things will be good. And that's asking a lot of somebody to be to ask them to do that. So uh, Rick came in, and Rick was the kind of guy who who could do an excellent job of recruiting. And he spent hours talking to people from the market. And there, there were people in the market that we really wanted. But you know, how do you, how do you go to a guy who's a top biller in an established station in the company that's been there, and maybe is in other markets as well, and say, hey, you ought to come over here and join us. So we had to find up and comers. We had to find people who were started in the business, were doing pretty well. Maybe they were mid pack in a sales department somewhere else. And they, you know, they, they really were doing okay, but maybe they could do better if they had a better account list, you know, because a lot of the great accounts were already, you know, being called on by someone. And, so we wanted people who really would get out and do a good job. I wanted really smart people who could think on their feet and uh, people who, who came to work every day and were excited about what they were doing. Certainly a recipe for success. What I'd like to do now that we have uh, hired all these people in the radio station, I want to talk to you, Hal, a little bit about getting them to work together inside and some team building things that you've done. But first, we're going to take a short break. 
uh, for our Ask John segment. We'll check in with John Garziglia on some legal issue, and then we'll return to hear the rest of the cool radio story of Hal Winston. It's time to Ask John, a regular feature where we ask John Garziglia, a partner with the FCC law firm Womble Bond Dickinson, about legal matters facing the broadcast radio industry. Checking the email bag for a question for John Garziglia. Today, we find one about copywriting. What should a station trademark, service mark, just a station logo, the call letters, the taglines? What should one consider when creating copyrights for their radio station? Well, all of them. Uh, in all seriousness, if a broadcast station is going to spend money protecting something like a slogan, a logo, or a mascot, the uh, station should protect itself by seeking uh, either a state service mark, or if the station is uh, using the mark across state lines, or might use the mark nationally to uh, have a federal service mark for the for the uh, logo or the uh, slogan. Seeking such a mark does two important things. First of all, the, the process of seeking a mark quickly indicates whether anybody else is using the slogan, logo, or mascot, uh, and uh, it might infringe on somebody else's already uh, licensed or already uh, service marked use of the intellectual property. Second, if the station's use of the mark is successful and the station revenues thrive based upon the use of the mark, the mark becomes part of the value of the station. And if the station properly protects it, it can also be licensed for use by others. So leaving aside whether or not a slogan, logo, or mascot is protected with a service mark, stations got to be absolutely sure that before initializing the use of any new slogan, logo, or mascot, or even putting significant sums into promoting any existing uh, intellectual property such as this, they need to be certain that the mark is not owned by somebody else. Um, there was once upon a time in our radio industry where we could drive uh, and listen to stations and other markets and then just borrow what they were using, uh, intellectual property that they perhaps had created or themselves borrowed, and use it at our own stations. That day is gone. Most intellectual property used by radio stations, and particularly those such as slogans and, uh, and logos, are uh, fully owned and protected by entities using them or those entities are licensing them from somebody else. So really in short, if, uh, if you Google a mark and you find any use by another broadcaster entity, seek uh, intellectual property legal advice as to whether it's a legally protected mark before using it because otherwise you could find yourself on the wrong end of a cease and desist letter or worse in using that uh, intellectual property yourself. <laughs> We're back listening to the cool radio story of Hal Winston. Hal has uh, worked at a number of radio stations, including WLS in Chicago, King in Seattle, and has also been a station owner in markets like San Antonio and then smaller markets just outside of San Antonio. We've been talking to him about building a radio station from the ground up, also building a team specifically. We've talked about sales, production, on-air staff, uh, Al, and recruiting them. Now let's talk about once you got them in a building, how do you keep them all happy? How do you go about building a cohesive team at a radio station? Well, you, you, you start having social get-togethers, which is what we did. We actually started the station on uh, uh, New Year's Day of, uh, of 1984. We turned it back on at midnight, 12.01 uh, a.m., I should say, 
And so we had had a couple of get-togethers with people prior to that where we had the whole staff together. We went out and rented a restaurant room and you know, had everybody talk about themselves and who they were and where they came from and gave people some time in that, in that uh, venue to be able to spend some time together and get to know each other and talk a little bit. I felt like that worked really well. And uh, th- that's how we got that started. Uh, I think the other thing is that uh, as we got things started and things began to get going, we celebrated people's successes. If a salesperson made a big sale, you know, we'd make a big deal out of that in the station because it was a big deal. You got to remember, we're starting with zero revenue here. (laughs) We don't have any money coming in. So every sale was important. And uh, uh, so, you know, it's a matter of, of keeping those people together. I have to say this, and this is something that maybe some people who are, are thinking about making studio changes and building big buildings would, would think about. And I realize the world has changed a great deal since we were involved in this, because now you have multiple stations in the same facility. One of the things we did about a year and a half in was to build new studios. And we took a big chunk of a, of a 12th floor of a high-rise building uh, that was one, one of the neatest air studios we ever built because you could see all the way across town from there. In fact, you could darn near do traffic reports out of there because of the way it was set up. The first studios we had that we inherited from the previous ownership, we were all pretty much crammed together. We used to kid about in the sales department putting in bunk desks. It was so tight. When we went to the new building, it spread us out quite a bit. And that did not help communication. And if I'd had it to do over again, I would have built a smaller facility, probably in the same building, but a smaller facility than we built. Our, our original plan for this whole deal was to get San Antonio off the ground and then buy a station somewhere else and add that to a, build a small group. We didn't get to that. But, uh, you know, one thing that I, th- I thought we missed was we kind of lost a little communication when the salespeople were way down on one end and the rest of the people were way down on the other end with the office people kind of in the middle. Well, it's interesting because there was quite a fad there for a long time of radio stations upgrading their facilities to much larger facilities, and it did indeed separate the staff. We had Ron Stone on one of our previous podcasts, and he was telling me, even though he ran dozens of stations across the country, his routine was to make sure he got to every one of them routinely. And of course, pre-COVID days, it was just he just needed to be close to these people, be in contact, and see them and visit with them. Yeah, I think I think you know in radio management, radio management is a management-intensive, hands-on situation. And I don't care if you have one station or a hundred stations. I think you need that in every operation. Uh, I don't think the general manager can go off somewhere in an office and not, you know, see the rest of the staff for a day at all. I think you got to walk around, you know, it's the old thing, management by walking around. Uh, I think that's really important. I think it's, it's important you go in and sit down with the people in the back office and say, okay, what's going on? Talk to them about what's happening. I think you talk to your sales managers about, uh, you know, what's going on today? Um, you know, we, we had uh, two weekly sales manage two weekly sales meetings with the salespeople 
but I had an everyday meeting with the sales manager uh, and sometimes more than that, uh, not because I didn't think he was doing his job, but because I wanted to know what was going on. And I think, you know, and, and I, I, I worked with him in such a manner that he knew that, you know, I wasn't in there second guessing him all the time because that, that doesn't get you anywhere. What I was trying to do was just keep myself apprised of what was happening in the, in the station. Well, Hal, let's move along to the next phase of your radio station ownership where you went from a large measured market like San Antonio to more of a fringe, some would say a suburban radio station on the outlying of the city. I found this to be interesting because I think a lot of our owners, our listeners, are those kind of competing with the large radio station in their listening geographic area. What was that experience like? Some moments of happiness and other moments of terror. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it, it, um, it, it's kind of funny how that happened because uh, uh, we had sold the FM in San Antonio and then I went up to uh, New Braunfels, Texas and was in an AM-FM situation up there, sold out of that. A guy I had known who was a state representative who owned car dealerships had bought this station in Seguin, Texas, which is about 40 miles away from San Antonio. The FM for uh, KWED had been moved to San Antonio and now and then was under the uh, guise of the Cox people. So we had a, what had been an AM-FM combination, now was an AM. He thought his daughter was going to run it. She didn't want to run it. So he was looking for somebody to do something. And I was essentially half retired at that point. He called up one day. He says, you know, why don't you come over and let's have lunch? <laughs> and he got me excited about it. So anyway, we went over there and I was in Seguin for 15 years at KWED. It is a very difficult thing to be just close enough so that you are totally umbrellaed by every signal in this big market. So there are, you know, 30 some other choices, but you are 40 miles away. And so you get none of the advantages of business from those advertisers in the big market because they, they can't hear you over part of it when you've only got a kilowatt. So what you have to do is think in terms of what can we do in, in your local market to make it, you know, what, what was needed. And what they really needed over there was local news because they really didn't have any. They had a local newspaper, which was publishing in the afternoon at the time, which to me makes no sense at all for a newspaper, but you know, I'm not a newspaper guy. I'm sure somebody could uh, do a whole couple hours on why they would do something like that. But anyway, they were afternoon publishers. So the first thing I did when I got over there was went looking for a news guy and found a guy who'd had a little bit of radio experience but was teaching school and sat down with him and talked to him and it was something that he really wanted to do. He had grown up over in the Houston market and had done some part-time stuff over there and then had moved to, uh, to Seguin because he got a teaching job and thought that that's pretty much the direction he was going to go. So I hired Darren Dunn to be our, our news director, pretty much talked to him about, you know, we don't want a thing to go on here. I don't want a dog to bark. Then we don't know why this dog barked. 
uh, we want to be on top of everything all the time. So that means this is a this is a big job. It is a long hours job. It's not an eight to five. I need you to go to all the, the local meetings. I need you to get to know everybody in the market because I'm going to try to do the same. I need you to get involved in, in some way in the market so that you are involved in the community. And we're going to work hard on that from the station standpoint as well. Uh, and, you know, we need to be, when the sky gets dark and the thunder's rolling, we want people to turn on our radio station because they know that in that situation, we will be on the air with what's going on. So the, the, the station played country music, but we did a three-hour news block every morning. We did it well. We did a three-hour news block, and it was made up of a combination of network and features and local news. and And there there was enough for us to do it. And we had a we we hired a meteorologist to do our weather for us, uh, for for us, not for San Antonio, because it can be raining like crazy in San Antonio, and the sky's out in Seguin, or the sun's out in Seguin. And so we did that. We had a news department of three, and that was most of the staff on the on the programming side of the station. We we bought the best automation system we could find and put the thing on 24 hours a day because it hadn't been before. So at the time, the SS32 was about the best thing going, and that's what we bought. We we got together with uh, local people, and we had church broadcasts on Sunday mornings that were paid involvement with the uh, local meetings. If there was a big meeting going on that was uh, something in the community, like the school board, or they were going to hire a new superintendent or anything like that, we went over there and broadcast it live for people who couldn't get there. We had a great Marty system. Um, People don't know what a Marty is. It's a remote pickup radio system. Uh, There was no internet to speak of at that time. It was very fledgling situation and so uh we were we we had a great marty system we broadcast the high school football made a lot of money on it we broadcast the high school basketball did not make much money on that i actually had a group of advertisers get together and come to me to uh have us do a uh, girls volleyball tournament because the team had gotten to the regional championship so we did a girls' volleyball game. One of the people in the news department was really a sports guy who did a little news, but he did mostly sports and covered that. Uh, covered it locally and then secondarily nationally. And one of the other things we did, you know, listeners are advertisers too. Advertisers are usually involved in some type of charitable organizations. So all of our public service announcements, every single one, were 30-second public service announcements, and they were voiced by the people who were involved in the public service organization. Many times, as many advertisers as we could get who were involved in those things. And what we wanted to have happen was we wanted to have people tell those people they had heard them on the radio, specifically on our radio. So if you're an advertiser and you've got people coming into your store and they're saying, hey, I heard you doing the spot for the uh, Rotary Banquet this week on the radio. And then I send a salesman in there. How does that help the salesman? I think that's pure genius, getting some of the local voices, business owners' voices on the radio station, reading the PSAs. I love that idea. 
And you're right. Uh, certain people will come into their place of business, say they heard them on the air, and then your sales guy follows up next day or two and says, hey, I'm from this radio station. Oh, gosh, people actually listen to radio station because I got a few comments. Never seems to fail. Obviously, now uh, salespeople walking into locations is a bit challenging as uh, the world is under this coronavirus COVID-19 crisis. Certainly has changed the complexity of radio stations and how they do business. Hal, I just want to kind of get your view, uh, if you were still owning a radio station, uh, how you might approach this latest crisis. This is probably the toughest time that I think I have ever seen, um, not only for radio, but in my lifetime. You know, you, you hear people say that we're all involved in this thing. And, you know, even putting aside the world wars and the other things that, that have happened, we really are all involved in this thing, whether we like it or not, the whole planet. So what do the radio guys do during this? Um, I belonged to an organization that Dean uh, Sorensen may have, re- uh, have mentioned to you, the International Broadcasters Idea Bank. I'm still an emeritus member of that organization. What that is, it's a group of 100 broadcasters who share everything. It's a very loose group. It started back in the 60s. Uh, they capped the membership at 100 um, and I've been just watching what those guys have been doing and they're doing everything. I mean, they're, they're trying to find ways to maintain revenue because, uh, and, and, and avoid letting people go. And that's the hardest thing going on with this because a lot of people are, are losing jobs, not because of anything they've done, but because there's just no revenue to pay them. And I hate that. I think that the best thing that that they can that broadcasters can do now is look for alternative sources of revenue. Um, there are some public service type organizations that have been funded by the federal government that are giving that money to local organizations to do public service type things uh, that relate to uh, the COVID, you know prevention and and, uh, how to live with this thing that's going on. I think you have to help your advertisers locally. Uh, There's a lot of free time being given away. And, you know, it's it's important to remember that, you know, what we do in broadcasting is not free. Uh, People will sometimes get the idea that, well, it's there every day and somebody else is going to take care of it. Somebody else is going to finance it. And that's not true. the community has to support its broadcast organizations if they want to have them. So I, I think that's the other things they need to do is they need to be very creative in the standpoint of what they're doing with current advertisers. If you, you know, these guys are hurting too because they're either closed or they're in a situation where having very little opportunity to have any kind of customers come in at all. So I think you have to help those people. This is a time to bonus advertising to uh, try to help people to stay in business. Like I mentioned, there are some public funds available for things like that. It's just tough, Tom. I mean, it it's it's a difficult thing. I hope that this thing gets over quickly, at least from businesses being closed, because we took what has been the greatest, uh, what, what in my lifetime has been the greatest uh, economy I think we've ever had and trashed it in a matter of weeks. And hopefully we can get it back in some form quickly. 
One of the things I think I think these guys have to do also is, you know, you see a lot of TV spots right now where the advertiser involved is saying, we're here to help. Well, th- that's great. And I understand that that's a, a feel good thing. Maybe it's a feel good thing for the advertiser, but I want to know how you're here to help. If, if I'm going to come into your business, tell me what you're doing right now, because maybe I'm out of a job and I need some help right now in, in, in a particular area. What, what are you doing to help these people? Not necessarily the fact that you're there to help. That's good and it's fine and I, I support it. But tell me what you're doing to help. I, I think one of the TV spots I saw recently, and, and there's an, I don't know if you have them where you are, other people have them, but there's an outfit called Cane's, which is a chicken, fast food chicken place uh, that we've had here in San Antonio for just a few years. They're relatively new here, but I guess they're around the country. So the president of Cane's, the guy who owns Cane's is on TV, and he's not talking about Cane's at all. He's wearing a shirt with a Canes logo on it. But what he's saying is, here are some things you can do to help your family, and here are some ways you can do things during this uh, pandemic we have going on that are specific things. And he never says a word about Canes. But you know who he is, and you know what he's doing. And his message is strong enough that it really struck a chord with me that here's a guy who's spending money using his time and obviously, down the line, he will hope that this does does uh, does a positive thing for him. But right now, he's not selling chicken. He's trying to help people. And he genuinely comes off that way. Well, and there's also plenty of research out there concerning advertising and marketing during troubling times. You must keep it up. And this is a good thing to communicate out to your retailers you don't necessarily have to be selling your products and goods and services. This product's better than that product because, or we're the lowest prices or customer service, but rather take a different tact, let people know why you're there. It goes back to when someone you know dearly loses a loved one and you simply, there's two ways to approach that and say, you're in my thoughts and prayers or actually do something. And that's what I think your message is. And it's a strong one for our listeners to take home with them. And we thank you again, Hal Winston, for sharing your cool radio story with us. We're not just quite finished. uh, We're going to take a little dip into the digital world. Our audio magazine that we end our show with typically is called Digging Into Digital. It's time to dig into digital. Our segment on how you can use digital to unleash the power of your station. Here's our digital guide, Zhang Wanzhong, CEO of Radiomax. I was recently thinking about the explosion of smartphones and the skyrocketing increase of users accessing the various media through their phones. You know what? Radio has some catching up to do if it wants to compete for listeners' ears and eyeballs. When you think about digital and radio, sometimes it's, it can be a little confusing. What does it actually mean? I think most simply, what you need to think about is, am I streaming my radio station? Do I have mobile for my radio station? Basically, do I have other ways that our listeners can interact and connect with our station? There are so many cost-affordable solutions available to radio stations right now through streaming, through mobile, that are going to allow you to capture all the digital advertising dollars that are being spent in the U.S. Think about this for a second. 
Right now, over half the advertising spend in the U.S. is being done through digital. But radio, the most important and powerful medium out there, is only getting 7% of those digital dollars. And why? Because radio hasn't adopted the tools that the digital marketers are looking for. So how do you dip your toe in the water? How do you start to see the, the options that are available? Like I said, streaming. It's amazing to me right now how many stations we talk to and they're not even streaming yet. Yeah, we think about the royalties and what that's going to cost, but when you start to stream, the actual streaming costs are, are, are pennies over, you know, over the course of it's just it's, It doesn't cost that much money. Sure, you got to think about the royalties, but when you start to stream, you're not going to have a ton of listeners. You're going to build that up, and as you're building that, you're going to be able to draw in those digital dollars that are going to easily offset those costs. And then think about mobile. Mobile allows you to interact, engage with your listeners never before available to radio. You'll have measurement. You'll have statistics that you can provide to those digital advertisers. There are so many things we can be doing better as radio. You know what I was thinking about? Does everyone remember what happened to the record labels when they didn't embrace digital? Radio cannot let that happen. We all need to thinking about how we can do digital better. Radio is always evolving. It's going to continue to evolve. And to capitalize on the growing market share, we need to embrace the new digital landscape. Next week, we'll be talking about more specifics on digital, more specifics on advertising, how to drive revenue, and how we can all work together to take radio, the most powerful, impactful mass medium out there, and help it grow and thrive. That's John Wanzung, CEO of Radiomax. For more on using digital to unleash the power of your station, visit radiomax.co. Well, that concludes another episode of Cool Radio Stories. I'm Tom Dobrez, owner of Cool Radio Streaming. Let us know if we can help you with any of your audio streaming needs. Until next week, we hope you have enjoyed the cool radio story of Hal Winston. We sincerely thank him for sharing it with us. You've been listening to Cool Radio Stories, a production of Cool Radio Streaming. For more information, show notes, guest profiles, and more, visit CoolRadioStories.com and subscribe to the podcast at Apple iTunes, Overcast, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts.